Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about how Britain's armed forces adapted to the challenges of fighting the Second World War. Professor Jeremy Black, uh, in late September 1938, Britain seemingly nearly went to war, the fleet was mobilised, and then the Munich Agreement meant there wasn't a war. Um, We know that Germany used the intervening months very successfully to build up its war machine, to seize the Skoda armaments factory from the Czechs, it built many of the tanks, uh, and so on. How usefully did the British armed forces use those months that Munich bought before war finally was declared in September 1939? Well, I think that's a very good question. And of course, it relates to an issue of counterfactuals. In other words, the question of what kind of war might be coming. Um, and, you know, there was a belief, as you know, you've written extensively on the period, there was a belief that this might well ensure that there wasn't a war. And it's not really until the following spring with the uh, German occupation of Bohemia and Moravia and the, as it were, renunciation of the Munich Agreement, that it becomes clearer that uh, Germany is not going to be encompassed in a, uh, in a, uh, a system of, um, as it were, mutual guarantees. So an, an adaptation of the Versailles Agreement. Um, I would say that um, in hindsight, but actually fairly clear to contemporaries as well, um, the British did use uh, the delay um, uh, successfully in building up their air defences and in building up their air uh, assault force. Uh, it was a weak assault force because of theirs yet didn't have the big four-engine bombers that were to be used in the war. But they're, you know, they're moving, moving and deploying new uh, um, aircraft. As we discussed last time, they are continuing to build state-of-the-art modern warships. Um, so that I think um, is very successful. As we also discussed last time, I mean, the army is not just. Uh, has to be mindful of Germany. Um, it's actively fa- fighting the um, Arab rising in, in Palestine. Um, it's got the um, problems on the northwest frontier of India. So um, I think it's fair to say uh, that the army is having to prepare itself across a range of activities, just as the Navy is and the Air Force. Um, the Air Force is the service that is most predicated on war with Germany. Um, and um, yeah, I would say it's very easy in hindsight, as we discussed last time, to assume that war with Germany was inevitable. I don't think war with Germany was inevitable uh, in the winter of uh, 1938 to 39 in the form it was to take, namely Germany being allied to the Soviet Union. And a point I didn't make last time, which is this. Now, understandably today, and you we, we discussed this last time and you've already implied it, uh, we consider things in terms of hindsight. And understandably, we know what a revolting, repellent and genocidal regime the Third Reich was. Um, I think it's fair to say that it was already clear by late 1938 that the Third Reich was brutal and murderous uh, and um, a regime which would have been very much better had it not been there. But in terms of genocide, in terms of the killing of millions, that was not yet where the Third Reich was at. There was a regime of that form in Europe. That regime was the Soviet Union. And I find some of the subsequent writing about the war in which it is clear to so many modern historians, and I've got one of those books on my desk to review for another journal, Um, in which, you know, it's arguing that the British should have allied with the Soviet Union more forcefully against Nazi Germany and that it was foolish to um, 
uh, be anti-communist. Well, you may or may not take that view, and we could discuss strategy. As you know, I have a book uh, forthcoming on strategy in World War II. But I think if you wish to use the humanitarian argument, uh, which is an argument that is important, but if you wish to use that, I think you have to be absolutely clear that if you were looking at the world in uh, January 1939, the mass murderer with most blood on his hands was Joseph Stalin and not Adolf Hitler. They were both vicious and unpleasant people. You could argue they deserved each other in the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. But if you had to talk about which one had so far killed the most people, then the answer would clearly be the Soviet Union. Well, in August 1939, as you say, there's the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, this astonishing event which seems to change so many strategic calculations upon which British foreign policy and military strategy is based. But the, the core of British military strategy is um, alliance with France at this stage. Uh, even though military conversations had been sporadic and had really only picked up in the in in the months before the Second World War began, um, how good was the working relationship between the the British and French armed forces on the eve of war and in the the phony war period? Well, again, an excellent question. Let's start off. As I mentioned last time, I quoted from a uh, general staff British document of 1919, which said, as you will recall, uh, that the biggest danger for Britain would be an alignment between um, Russia and the Soviet Union and Germany. So the British had been aware that that was an issue. There had, of course, been a Soviet-German um, war links, military preparation links, in the uh, 1920s, the Soviet Union had throughout been opportunistic, to put it mildly. But going to your next question about Anglo-French relations, well, what I would do is I'd slightly qualify your comment. I'd say that the actual prime strategic relationship for the British was not France, it was the empire. And if you're looking at it from a naval perspective, for example, the Japanese naval threat or perceived threat to the empire um, in the Far East, which in other words includes the approaches to Australasia, um, is one that is more serious for navalists than the German Navy. But you are correct, absolutely correct, in arguing that once Britain had the guarantees to Poland and Romania, then those guarantees could only be effectuated in cooperation with France. You're absolutely correct. And you're also absolutely correct to say that were there to be confrontations, still worse conflict with Germany, then this would require the cooperation of France. Um, I think it's also, though, fair to say that there had been issues over which Britain and France had sought cooperation over recent years, some more successful than others. You can think of everything from uh, the Italian intervention in Abyssinia, the question of neutralism and containing the Spanish Civil War, um, the question of the militarization of the Rhineland, the Munich crisis, etc. So in other words, there is a track record of the two powers trying to use each other is the wrong term possibly, but that's part of every alliance. Um, and that in a sense, uh, the latest iteration, how best to help Poland or Romania and to give, uh, or both, and to give effect to those uh, guarantees is part and parcel of that. Now, um, clearly a lot was going to depend upon what the Germans did if there was to be war and with whom the Germans were allied. And remember, you're absolutely right to talk about the great surprise of August 39. You're absolutely right, which is the um, uh, rapprochement between communism and uh, Nazism, where, of course, there is the other big surprise about that, uh, about the autumn of 1939, is that Italy, despite being allied with Germany, does not come into the war. 
Um, so what you've got is the volatility of alliances as at that point, which makes military planning extraordinarily difficult. Now, I'm very interested in naval matters, as you know. Had there been war in, with Italy as well as Germany, then the Mediterranean would have been a much more serious matter for both Britain and France. Um, France, its links with North Africa, Britain, the links to the Suez Canal. That does not occur. So in other words, we can park that issue as it were, but it was not clear to anybody if you were sitting there and making plans in April or May or June 1939 that you were going to be able to park that issue. So I would say that the British government, like the French government, is operating in a volatile situation. In the case of British views of France, there is also the anxiety about the stability of the French government and the stability of the French political system, um, so which of course is a matter of concern for the British. But the British have got, you know, they, I mean, I, I quoted last time from the Montgomery Massingbird papers, he was chief of the Imperial General Staff, you will recall in the mid thirties. And I've got in one of my books on, on um, war military preparation in the uh, 1930s, an account of Montgomery Massingbird going to France, talking to the French, looking at French fortifications. The British had links, but in terms of specific plans, so much would depend upon what actually happened. Um, and that I think was a perfectly reasonable proposition. The British in a way were better prepared um, as were the French than they had been in 1914, uh, because the um, um, conscription did not was not delayed as it had been. Um, there was a um, there was a strong awareness of what was the possibility of air attack. There was in effect a naval agreement that was in place and relatively good as to where naval forces should be deployed. The British were prepared and ready to send the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, um, to, uh, to France. You might argue that uh, the problem was that there wasn't a force able to effectuate the guarantee to either um, Poland or Romania and you could make a good case on that. But on the other hand, you can turn that on its head and say, well, that's true of most guarantees. You know, that is actually the case. I mean, I don't want to go into it and upset listeners, but you know, we in effect are the guarantors for Estonia at the present moment. Our capacity to do much about that if uh, President Putin decides to be very difficult and is backed by other hostile powers is not as great as we would like to think. So guarantees are in part a matter of deterrence. Um, and if deterrence doesn't work, there are always grave difficulties. Well, you, you mentioned a moment ago that one of the differences between uh, 1939 and 1914 was uh, conscription had been introduced um, in the First World War. Initially, the British Armed Forces were, uh, were, were um, regulars supported then by, by volunteers. But that ceases to be the, the big debate that it was in the First World War. Simply, there isn't a debate about it in the Second World War. There is conscription. Um, the, the British expeditionary force that's sent across Can the I, say, I think I only listening to you, it's marvelous how you prompt my ideas. Yeah. Listening to you, I wonder whether this is a very unexpected, indirect benefit of something that was otherwise detrimental uh, strategically, which is uh, the independence of the bulk of Ireland. Because that in a way in World War One, it's not, and also because you could say the demise of the Liberal Party, because in World War One, the two main uh, restraints on conscription in political terms uh, were, were the um, opposition to it of the bulk of the Liberals, um, including people like the um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, McKenna, but also the concern about what this would mean in terms of the introduction of it in Ireland. And as you will know, that proved very contentious. Whereas neither of those factors were really pertaining in, in 1939. There were, of course, people who didn't want to fight. We'll leave aside those who were pacifists. We're talking here about people who didn't want to fight on political grounds. Um, and who oppose conscription therefore. But uh, if you look at those two groups, the, um, 
the fascists, um, you know, were a, uh, a marginal group who in many respects had their knees cut off as a, were, as a result of going to war with Germany um, because they always presented themselves as patriotic. Um, and then obviously uh, they were at war with Germany. Um, the other group were of course the, uh, the uh, far left um, uh, who followed Stalin's behest, most of them. Um, and they were more numerous and they were a problem and they were linked to strikes and so on. Um, but um, I think it's fair to say the government was, although not as robust as the French government, the British government was reasonably robust in dealing with them. Um, but the bulk of the public, and you could argue, if you wanted to look at the politics of it, you could argue that in contradiction to the argument that appeasement was a moral disaster. You could argue the exact opposite, that one of the reasons why conscription proved so possible uh, in Britain and that the country as a whole was behind the government was, and remember, we're talking about Poland, which is considerably more distant from Britain than Belgium, uh, not that it, that makes it less important, but just an observation, was precisely that in terms of what you might call just war theory, the government had been seen quite clearly to do everything possible to avoid a major conflict. And quite clearly, Hitler had established himself as totally untrustworthy, and incidentally, so had Stalin. And therefore, the domestic supporters of Hitler and Stalin um, were essentially similarly untrustworthy. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm very interested in the way in which the armed forces learn from their experiences. And the, and the early experiences are, are uh, certainly um, uh, provide them with no shortage of lessons. That there is the uh, aborted operations in Norway, and then as the Wehrmacht pushes through the Low Countries and France, there is what becomes the the, the Dunkirk uh, evacuation, and they, the whole um, uh, British expeditionary force is is brought back minus it, its equipment. Um, from then, is it a matter of the, of the British Army almost being rebuilt from scratch from that um, disaster, a deliverance from disaster, but still a disaster all the same? Or um, should we be looking more at the continuities? Well, again, that's a really interesting question. Um, well, I would say there are continuities. Um, the as you say, the majority of the manpower came back. Um, um, you know, it led to the very unfortunate uh, nickname because you can think also there was the Greek expedition the da in 41 Dakar in September 1940, the BEF, it was a horrible joke, but the BEF stood for back every Friday. You know, the, the uh, um, I would say that, um, the army in the summer of 1940 has, like the whole of the armed forces, an immediate task on which to focus, which is preparing to resist German assault. That means that the um, expeditionary uh, component, which had been to the forefront prior to that, is by its nature put to one side. Um, a certain amount, I mean, they're, they're lucky, the war industrial system, Britain has a bigger industrial base. Um, the, uh, there are new weapons coming through, which helps. There's also uh, Canadian troops that have come to Britain, not yet, uh, that have not gone to France. They're very important to the strategic reserve. Um, in the late summer of 1940, but the armed forces really have to reconceptualize themselves to oppose invasion, which was a task that Britain had not had to face to anywhere near the same scale in World War I. There'd been air assault in World War I, there'd been 
occasional anxieties about German landings. There'd been German naval bombardment of the East Coast, but there hadn't been a substantive fear of a large-scale German invasion. Um, so that situation is a new one. Um, do the army do it well? Again, we can't really tell. I mean, it's one of the uh, great counterfactuals. There are both strengths in the British approach and weaknesses in that of the Germans insofar as the invasion is planned. Uh, German weaknesses includes that their armed forces had been um, damaged by the campaigns already of 1914, most classically British sinking of German destroyers in Norway. Um, that the Germans had no amphibious capability, doctrine, training, um, which was a real problem uh, for their army, that the uh, British Navy was still the largest. And at that point, although Italy had come into the war, um, the defense of home waters was clearly foremost and there wasn't a need to think about Japan. Um, and on top of that, although there were to be grave limitations in preventing the Germans bombing British cities, nevertheless, in aerial combat, the British were very good. And they were fighting over home space, which gives you big advantages if your planes are shot down as long as the uh, pilot isn't killed, the pilot can be reused, not least because the British are making lots of planes, whereas every German pilot shot down is, is captured. Uh, and so there are, German limitations and British strengths, British morale. I mean, there was obviously in some quarters defeatism, but British morale um, was relatively high. Um, the um, the uh, determination to um, to uh, um, to fight was very different from the anxieties and problems that affected the French in the summer of 1940. So I think um, had the Germans landed, um, I think that they would have found it very difficult, um, particularly um, given the limitations of their aircraft um, in um, night attacks on warships um, and indeed in aerial combat against the British Air Force. And of course, the Germans would have been very vulnerable uh, in uh, to British warships as I mean, you know, the Germans who attacked Crete in 1941, it's worth bearing in mind that their aerial assault did well, but the forces sent by sea were actually intercepted by the Royal Navy, which at considerable costs did its duty, uh, took a lot of head casualties, but inflicted a lot of casualties on the Germans. Well, I want to um, uh, turn to, to the war in the air uh, for a moment. And um, before the war, there'd been an enormous amount of fatalism, certainly from politicians, but, but also uh, fear amongst the public about the bomber always getting through cities being completely annihilated. And, and of course, Coventry and large parts of London took a very serious hit at Clydeside as well. Um, but um, did the success of the RAF in the Battle of Britain and, uh, and the wider defence against, uh, against the bomber during 1940-1941, did that come as a, a bit of a surprise to um, both fighter uh, command and the, the RAF more generally? Or, or was it always the politicians and public opinion which, which was a little bit behind uh, what the, the military experts anticipated? Well, that's, again, a very good question. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I would urge listeners to read my book on air power. But let me start with a comment from, I've already mentioned Montgomery Massingbirds, and he said, I think we discussed some of this last week, he just said that one of the things that had caused him most irritation were what he termed the air man end of quote. Um, you've got to bear in mind that just as if we put aside the politicians for a second, if you're just looking at the military, and the same thing is true today, so you know, don't be under any illusions. Uh, the military, like any, um, you know, like the health service, for example, like universities, are a 
amalgam who wish to fight together, but also fight each other. So if you're looking at, um, at the Navy, you've got classically today differences between those people who emphasize submarines, surface warships, fleet air arm, if you look at the arm, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So if you look at the Air Force, there were obviously very major differences between those who put the emphasis and were, as it were, fighter barons and those who were bomber barons. Now, the, um, the German um, air assault on Britain um, has its serious limit. Let me make, make this quite clear. The strength, resolve, determination, and high morale and skill of the British were a crucial reason for the failure of the Germans, okay? But let's just, if you want to just look at also at the German issues. The Germans aren't, haven't got a heavy bomber. Um, they don't actually have a very good aero engine industry. Um, it's, it's part of their sort of, sort of rather gimcrack nature of German militarization. Um, they don't have an adequate bombing doctrine. The German strategy um, is a complete and absolute car crash in terms of planning an attack on Britain. In theory, the Luftwaffe is there to help achieve air superiority in order to cover um, the uh, the amphibious forces, particularly provide them with support against the British Navy, which is far stronger, and to provide them also, the, uh, the amphibious forces, with a form of mobile artillery until they can bring over adequate support in firepower. Okay? Well, I think it's fair to say that much of the leadership of the Luftwaffe did not like that. They wanted to um, go instead for an idea that they would be able to inflict defeat on Britain irrespective of whether there was a landing or not. In other words, that they would provide the demonstration of what you were talking about earlier, which is the anxieties and fears expressed in Britain. And the idea was, which was expressed in Luftwaffe circles, um, was that inflicting heavy damage on Britain would lead to a political change and would lead to Germany being given terms by the British without actually having to land. On top of that, but as a slightly different strand, was the Luftwaffe argument that the British uh, war system and morale could be more particularly hit if Germany destroyed the main British ports so that these were not able to import in particular food, but also munitions and materiel. And of course, one of the logic, and people tend to forget this, of the air assault on London is that London was one of Britain's leading ports, and more particularly, the leading port, because Liverpool and Glasgow were further away, that was most exposed to German air attack. So there are a series of overlapping um, emphases, shall we say. And as you obviously will be aware, that actually, whilst that might sound, oh, well, does this matter? Actually, what it leads is to strategic incoherence. And if you wish to be more florid in your use of language, strategic incontinence. And as a result of that, the Germans don't have an adequate plan. And in the absence of strategy, in the absence of an adequate plan or strategy, even had they inflicted more damage on the Royal Air Force, and even if they had inflicted more damage on the civilian population, had, if you like, more of the bombers got through, it is by no means clear that it would have had the consequences that the Luftwaffe anticipated or wished to anticipate. Um, and then obviously you've got other timetables at play. 
There is the timetable of deteriorating relationships between the Soviet Union and Germany, and therefore the need to start thinking about planning for war against, um, against the Soviet Union. There is the timetable of advancing uh, equinox weather and then advance towards winter. And there is the grim fact that much of the army leadership does not wish to take part in an invasion of Britain, not because they are um, uh, pro-British, but simply because they are worried about what an amphibious operation might lead to, that it might well be an absolute shambles. So I think all of those factors are quite considerable, uh, quite of quite considerable significance. Now, as you know, you ask about the question of the bomber getting through. We do know that civilian morale, understandably, in some places, was hard hit. This is fully understandable. It would be the same today. If you think about it, and I do not, I hope this doesn't sound harsh to listeners, it isn't intended as harsh, but it will be pointed out. We at the moment are running scared as a society of a relatively modest death rate when quite frankly, the nature of the death being meted out to people by uh, unrestricted bombing was far worse um, during the German air offensives, uh, you know, including hospitals being blown up and such like. You know, the comparisons that people draw now between World War II and the um, struggle with the COVID pandemic are insulting to those who served in World War II and insulting to those who suffered its arbitrary, vicious and unpleasant consequences. Um, so it's not surprising that in some areas, civilian morale proved particularly problematic. There was a famous instance of a collapse of the civil authorities in Southampton. Not surprising, Southampton was basically much of it incinerated. Um, there was um, areas of London where morale proved febrile. Again, not surprising. Um, but I think the government had responded quite well by, first of all, the evacuation of children, which I think was a very sensible step, because I think that for many people, what really causes them, even, you know, real grief to stoicism is seeing their children die, uh, particularly if they die in misery and pain. Um, and I think the government did well about in that. Um, and you know, the ultimate uh, situation was that the um, extent to which. Um, the RAF really hit daytime bombing, um, forced the Germans to use nighttime bombing, which was devastating, but which also carried a, uh, as it transpired, um, less of a, uh, I mean, you know, in the nighttime, more people were hunkered down in uh, shelters. Um, they weren't going around to work as they did in the daytime. There was, to an extent, a different vulnerability. Well, the um, Britain is, of course, uh, as you pointed out um, towards the beginning of this podcast, you know, fighting as, as part of an empire. It's as well as its large Indian army and uh, you know, the Canadian forces you mentioned and uh, the Australians and the New Zealanders as well. It's um, deploying its own forces around the world. Um, after Malaya and Singapore are lost uh, and Burma is, is lost, um, how were the forces uh, grouped um, globally, uh, British forces grouped globally around the world compared to those uh, defending the home uh, the home territories and, and preparing for the um, uh, liberation of, of, of Europe? Well, that's a good question. And can I, by the way, suggest we don't rush this because I think listeners would probably be uh, happy to hear two programmes on World War II. So let's slow the pace um, slightly. Um, so that's a very good question. Now, um, the British government had at every stage to consider the views of uh, other governments within the empire. Governments, of course, took a very different 
uh, uh, position uh, in terms of their constitutional status uh, and in terms of their particular geopolitical interests. The, um, and also from the British perspective and the perspective of the empire itself, this is made more dynamic, changeable, if you like, by the actual course of the war. So what do I mean by that? Italy coming into the war and France essentially becoming with Vichy um, pro-German or at least potentially pro-German very much alters the parameters as far as other parts of the empire are concerned. And so does the movement of Japan towards a steadily more confrontational situation. So that whereas in um, the early stage of the war, the movement of Australasian troops to the Middle East, as in 1914-15, uh, was relatively unproblematic. The situation changes dramatically after the fall of France, because what that does is increase Japanese interest in expansion southwards. There are two, there are successive crises over um, Indochine, in other words, what we would call Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, which are French colonies, and war appears to be more of a prospect. And at that stage, obviously, there is increased pressure um, uh, in both those countries, particularly Australia, to pull troops back. Um, you ask about the balance. Um, again, uh, part of this is a matter of the, um, the sense that the British government has about the relationship between defence and offence. Now, Churchill, and I think this is one of his more sensible strategic decisions, took the view that while the British should remain on the defence in the homeland, the home countries, there was obviously no capacity to do more than mount commando raids on the coasts of Norway and France. Um, nevertheless, and remember at this stage, there was no realization that the Soviet Union was going to be anything other than a continued support for Germany. Nevertheless, he took the view that the British ought to respond proactively, uh, strongly, uh, to Italy's entry into the war and to the challenge by, posed by Vichy. And what that meant is that in the second half of 1940 into 1942, a significant amount of the resources of both Britain and the empire are expended accordingly. I mean, you know, British people are often very pejorative about the Italians. This is unwise. There were good and brave Italian units and um, it was a formidable challenge fighting the Italians in both Libya and Italian East Africa, which would now be Eritrea, Ethiopia, and most of Somalia. Uh, the Italians had between 450 and 500,000 men in these areas. It's a formidable amount. In terms of Vichy, um, the British took, and British Imperial troops took most of the work um, in conquering Syria, uh, Lebanon, and Madagascar, and also had military commitments elsewhere against Vichy, some of them more successful than others. And we've already mentioned the Dakar expedition. And then on top of that, the British concern about powers that were neutral and the risk that these would move into the hands of Germany led to military interventions in Iceland in, in 1940, in Iraq, of course, um, and in Iran. So all of these required considerable amounts of troops. And I think it's fair to say they were only possible because of the empire. I mean, in terms of Iraq you, and Iran, you have significant numbers of um, Indian troops, Iceland, significant numbers of Canadians, Madagascar, significant numbers of South Africans, uh, East Africa, um, again, South Africans, uh, West Africans, British East Africans, British troops, uh, Indians, um, and you know, a, a whole shooting match in, in North Africa as well. So these are very major commitments. Now, if you wish to be 
uh, to put it in a wider context, you could say some of these campaigns were the last wars of empire. And in which case you can say, given that our, 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 our opponent, our principal opponent was Nazi Germany, yet again, it reminds us that empire was a force for good, which probably some of your listeners don't wish to listen to. How um, integrated was, was that command between British armed forces and uh, those of the empire? I mean, the, the chief of the Imperial General Staff is really the head of the British army. Um, how integrated was he with his opposite numbers in the Canada and Australia and, and, and so on? Well, again, that's an excellent question. Um, I, some years ago, I, I had a visiting chair at the Australian uh, Defence Force Academy, which is in Canberra, and I obviously looked at the, the papers there in their collection as well. But I also looked at some stuff in the Australian National Archives, which included Australian War Cabinet um, documents on, you know, relations with Britain, strategy and so on. Um, I think I would say that... If you compare it with the usual problems of coalition warfare, the, I mean, you know, because obviously people often play up the degree to which the Australians got cross. Uh, they play up the extent to which the Canadians got cross that they had sent troops to Hong Kong who were subsequently captured and seriously mistreated by the Japanese. I think if you put it in perspective with the strains that the British were to encounter, in their relations with the United States, still more Charles de Gaulle, still more Joseph Stalin, then I think you could fairly say imperial relations were a walk in the park. Um, there were obviously issues. There's no two ways about that. And there were also problems. There were genuine problems. But I think that the contribution the empire made was very strong. And, um, I mean, the one I would say that was most important, we are about to get the clock going, by the way, <laughs> the one my, my clock is going to make it, but the one that is about so the voice of doom, to, to use a, um, a title of a famous uh, World War II Sherlock Holmes uh, film, um, which I urge listeners to, to watch if they haven't ever seen it, Basil Rathbone being marvellous as ever. Um, the um, Canada, on which there was a marvellous book by David Dilks, produced in terms of per capita help to Britain, far more economic and financial help than the United States, um, and was really a very, very strong ally. Now, the Canadian government, Mackenzie King, did not want Canadian troops sent to North Africa. He did not want them sent on British imperial wars as he saw them. He wanted them to be fighting are against the Germans as their parents had done in World War One, and indeed that's one of the reasons for the Dieppe invasion in some respects, the disaster there was precisely that that was where Mackenzie King was willing to send troops. Um, but I think the Canadians play an absolutely crucial role. Obviously the Indians, the Australians and the New Zealanders, their, their attention is pivoted when Japan comes into the war. Um, India plays the key role in defeating, uh, there we go, uh, in, in defeating the Japanese in Burma, which in Myanmar, which is a formidable achievement. Uh, um, very large numbers of Japanese troops are there. Um, the Australians play the key role as far as um, we're concerned in defeating the Japanese in New Guinea, another major campaign on land. I mean, obviously, Australia, New Zealand are not great naval powers. Canada is a great naval power. At the end of the war, it's the third largest naval power in the war. But the Canadian Navy uh, focuses and Canadian shipbuilding focuses on anti-submarine activity and plays a crucial role in the war in the Atlantic. Um, so I think you could say that the empire is absolutely fundamental and it was really important to Britain understood as the empire being a great power. Um, and sometimes you get rather foolish, in my view, comments about, you know, Britain being 
as it were, no longer a great player once the Soviet Union and the United States had come into the war. I think that's foolish because I think it downplays the extent to which when you think of Britain, you think of the empire. And in a way that underlines the issue posed, which again is very important that, and this is very fortunate for Britain, that there is, as you know, and it's been played up uh, since, there is a pro-Japanese uh, movement among Indians, uh, among Indians who, particularly those who are captured. And there is also a um, Quit India campaign by Indian nationalists. But the fact of the matter is that the majority of the Indian armed forces go, who are volunteers, of course, there are no conscription in India, go on serving loyally and effectively. And you could argue that the most glorious um, a campaign in Indian military history is the role of Indian units in defeating the Japanese in Burma in 1945. And it's only because of the nationalist myth-making that's so much part of modern India that that is ignored. And I think I would take that a stage further. A lot of British historians of India are so obsessed with talking about what they regard as British racism and other such issues that they underplay the extent to which uh, India made a positive, strong contribution and many Indians were and still are rightly proud of it. Yes, very much so. That's a very firm point. Um, time, not just your own clock, but time is, is ticking. So I, I wonder if we can just press on and um, just focus on the experience of the British soldier in 1944, 1945, from the push from the Normandy beaches through towards the Rhine. How well equipped were uh, British forces in this period compared to uh, other allies and their adversaries in, in terms of the, um, the, the weapons they had, but also the, the backup and logistical supplies that, that, that kept them, that sustained them? Um, the British had difficulties in World War II in producing an effective tank that met the requirements, but and you will know I've done a book on tank warfare, um, the trade-offs in tank between firepower, speed, maneuverability, and armor are ones, there's no such thing as a perfect tank. Uh, and you could argue the same problem was encountered by the Americans. In fact, it's encountered even more if you want to uh, think about it by the Japanese. Um, the British were very good in artillery, um, very, very good in artillery. They had perfectly reasonable logistical backup. Um, the uh, recent scholarly studies of the British Army in that period, which is by John Buckley, um, published by Yale, um, uh, portrays a essentially successful um, British Army group. And I see no reason to dissent or disagree from that. Uh, the British had a lot of the very hard fighting um, in, for example, uh, southern Holland, um, in the um, area around Clave and the lower Rhineland. These were really hard fighting areas. And obviously before that, um, the area around Caen in the, um, uh, in the Battle for Normandy. So the British had very heavy um, casualties. Uh, which reflected not their lack of fighting skill, but the difficulty of their task. Um, and um, it was, as indeed, again, we go back as we when we were discussing in um, uh, World War One, uh, we go back to the success of the British. And by British, I'm including Imperial forces. The Canadians were very important uh, in Montgomery's army group. The um, the British success in 1918. And in a sense, what we're talking about is a parallel. Um, the British were reasonably, I mean, they took heavy casualties. They were much more cautious about, and there's a good book on this by Russell, Russell, um, uh, no, Stephen Hart, uh, two brothers, Stephen Hart, H-A-R-T and Russell Hart. Um, the, um, 
they were, you know, they 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 tried. Montgomery tried to be cautious with his uh, manpower losses. He fought an, on the whole, deliberative style of warfare. Uh, he understood the use of artillery, the need to bring up uh, artillery to support the troops. No point charging ahead with tanks, which were vulnerable. And there was no equivalent to the profligate, callous use of. Um, their own manpower, loss of it by the Soviet generals. So I think actually it reflected a lot of credit on the British army, the 44-45 campaign. Uh, the sad truth was, and I do hope we can fit in another programme on World War II, because there's I think a lot to talk about about the British army and the strategy element, that you know, all of the, you, you sometimes get, yet again, I read another book on this recently, um, arguing that the, um, the British and the, you know, published by a reputable publisher, um, uh, uh, arguing, uh, but written by an academic, arguing that um, the British and the Americans should have, as it were, cooperated with the Germans against the Soviets. Well, it's worth bearing in mind um, that the, the Germans fought very hard in 1944-45 against the British and the Americans as they fought very hard against the Soviets. And that in many senses, uh, Hitler's launch of the Bulge Offensive, the Battle of the Bulge in mid-December 1944, reflects uh, not some wish to find a, a rapprochement with Britain and America. And could you think how base and deplorable, disgusting, such a rapprochement would have been, um, but reflects a determination to smash them hard um, so that then he can fight the Soviets. Um, and I think that that strategy, that German strategy, is in part thwarted by the success and fighting determination of the British and American, and by, by mentioning the British, I'm including the Canadians and other allied units, um, uh, forces on the, on, the, on the Western Front. Well, there's a, a huge amount to discuss, and we'll return to other features of uh, the British experience in the Second World War in a subsequent podcast. For now, though, sadly, we're out of time. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black, uh, whose many works on this subject include a history of the Second World War in 100 maps and also uh, a strategy in the Second World War. Um, for now, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And can I say, um, I think it's really important. I'm delighted with the questions. I thought those were very fair and all of them pertinent questions. I think it's very important that for people um, of our generations, I mean, I'm older than you, obviously, but of our generations, to be mindful of the fact that the um, when we're talking about this, we're not in any way underplaying the individual loss that people had, and in part using serious discussion of these subjects honours the struggles made by a previous generation. That's very much our hope. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.